Hey, everybody, and welcome to Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilson. Our very special guest today is Brad Lohman. Brad Lohman is a leader and subject matter expert in digital storage and infrastructure with over 35 years of experience. His current role is storage architect for Walt Disney Studios, where Brad supports Marvel, Disney, and the 20th Century Studio labels. He is responsible for solving the large-scale, complex challenges of digital storage. Brad has also held roles in production at Walt Disney Animation Studios and Disney New Technology and New Media. Brad is also an entrepreneur and in 1999 helped create the world's first digitally connected picture frame. He ventured into commercial winemaking on California's Central Coast where he produced over 4,000 cases of wine. Welcome to Fresh Tech Fridays. Uh, My friend and colleague Brad Lohman is the storage architect for Walt Disney Studios as well as an entrepreneur and winemaker. Um, And quickly, before we go any further, I want to make sure that everybody knows that Brad and I want you to know that Brad's opinions are solely his own and do not reflect the opinions uh, of the Walt Disney Company. So with that said, Brad, good morning. How are you? Good. Um, It's a beautiful day here in sunny Southern California. Yeah, it's really nice out. I heard it's going to be in like the 80s this weekend, so I'm going to have to find some outdoor activities to do, I guess. Um, so, Brad, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What do you do when you're not working? So, I am a native Californian, born and, ra- born and raised in Northern California, moved down here to Southern California in 1977, went to school at uh, University of California, Riverside, graduated with uh, computer science, uh, went to work for UCLA for five years. And then in 1990, made the jump to uh, Disney. Uh, back then, Disney feature animation, working on uh, Beauty and the Beast as my first film, where you'll you'll see my name. And there for nine years, eight of us left in 99 to create a little internet startup company, kind of right at the end of the bubble, not the best timing <laughs> for an internet startup, but uh, that startup still exists today. So obviously had some very good ideas, created the uh, world's first digitally connected picture frame and came back to Disney in 2003 and have been there since and have about three weeks left before I retire. Well, congratulations. Two successful tours. That's really cool. Yes. Um, Yeah, I don't know how they're going to get you a cake on your last day because I don't think any of you are going to be there, huh? No, no, but I'm I'm told that after after I leave, they'll they'll send me a catalog in the mail and I get to choose my uh, retirement gift. Oh, okay. Nice. Get yourself a gold watch or something. Yes, yes, yes. The, the most important part, though, is that I get to keep my main entrance pass to Disneyland. Oh, really? Yes. So, yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit more about that. So the main entrance passes are what we used to call the Silver Pass, which allows myself and three guests to go to the park whenever it's not a blackout date. Um, okay. I wouldn't want to be there on a blackout date anyways. It's so busy. It allows me to enjoy the holidays, enjoy a day, half day, whatever I want. Sometimes I just go down to eat at a nice restaurant there because there are some really killer restaurants down there. Yeah. So That's very cool that you get to hang on to that. That's quite the uh, quite the retirement benefit. Uh, it is. It is. And, and one I'm very thankful to be able to have. 
All right. So today, um, or at least for the next whatever you said, seventeen days, you're the you're the storage architect for Disney. Tell me a little bit about like the work that you do and and why you like it, and how did you end up there? Sure. So. When I joined Disney in 1990, I came in as a system administrator for their digital new digital production system called CAPS, the computer-assisted production system, right? Where um, just before Beauty and the Beast, uh, The Rescuers Down Under was the very first film we ran through CAPS. Um, and while working on that film, they realized they needed a full-time system administrator to, to run that system, which was all uh, Unix-based. So I was brought in and was the first full-time sysadmin. And I got involved with compute storage networks, pretty much all aspects of the infrastructure in making films. So nine years of production experience. Um, over those nine years, I shifted uh, a bit more into software and what we now call asset management software, so that when I came back to the company in 2003 and was uh, working at a, at a corporate department doing evals of technology, and then in 2008, when I transferred over to the unit I'm in now, the, the studio technology team, I became more and more focused on principally the storage for the studios. And of course, the largest set of data that the studio has is the Disney Vault, which which this year is now 97 years worth of content because the company was founded in 1923. Um, and thus the fan club's name is D23. Uh -huh. So for the last 12 years, I have been choosing and implementing the storage technologies used to host the Disney Vault, which, of course, has grown considerably yeah, in, I bet. in that time as we acquired Pixar, Marvel, Lucas, um, and other properties. And now, of course, um, 20th Century Studios. That's right. The team yeah, formerly known as Fox. And we are just beginning the integration of that vault, which is many decades in size as well into it. That was, you guys got the whole library from them, from the, the movie library from 20th Century Fox was part of that, like split slash merger and acquisition, right? Correct. Um, as, as well as the TV shows, right? Uh, okay. Simpsons, Family Guy, a whole lot of fun, fun television content is all there as well. Over the years, though, as we acquired other properties, I got to be involved with more of the other studio units, including Fox. Right? I spent the last year plus heavily focused on Fox, but I've also been spending a lot of time working on Marvel, where my role there is a bit more advisory, looking at the requirements at the explosive growth in, in Marvel space and what technologies make sense for each of their production and post-production uh, post teams to, um, to implement. So um, all told, uh, between the, the Disney Studios uh, storage, which is principally the Disney Vault and the, and the Marvel production space, a uh, single copy of that data is about 50 terabytes. I'm sorry, how about we try that again? 50 petabytes. Yeah, I was going to say it must be a really low resolution. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. not. 
Yeah. yeah, about 50 petabytes. And of course, uh, almost all of it is replicated for DR protection purposes. So somewhere around 100 petabytes of data that I'm, gotcha. involved, that I'm involved in. Just a couple files, no big deal. Just a few. Um, and that's not counting uh, 20th Century Studios um, because we really don't have a great number yet for, mm -hmm. I mean, that measures in the, the tens of petabytes, but we don't know how many yet. Yeah, I imagine it'll take some time to get your arms around that. Um, so quick question about, <clears throat> because, you know, everybody's learning new stuff. Um, sounds like your last, the last thing you did was try to figure out uh, how to navigate these unprecedented times. Any um, lessons, any realizations? Did anything, did you learn anything from um, all the changes and, you know, the fact none of us can go to an office? Um. Uh, we sure did. Well, one, we learned a whole bunch about VDI um, yes, and, and VDI, uh, VDI technologies. We also learned that we like control because when you take processes that you've managed in-house for decades and you suddenly put them in the cloud and have your artists sitting at home accessing them in the cloud and something isn't working quite right, and I don't mean broken, I just mean slow. Trying to debug that, when you get into the black box that is the cloud, we lost control of being able to figure out what it is. And it turns out we like to be able to understand everything from end to end. Mm -hmm. So a number of those systems that we rushed to the cloud at the beginning of the pandemic have come rushing back. And, oh, interesting. And, and VDI technology has now become a very strong focus for us. Yeah, I imagine um, we have most of our customers did a big cloud migration also during that time or already had stuff there. But um, some of especially the larger uh, data sets we work on. That's exactly what they did. So we're going to, January is going to be, there's going to be some implementing of VDI. That's big on the, uh, big on the agenda for us. So you and I are both total storage nerds and, um, right. I'm, I'm guilty. We were talking yesterday. It sounds like, um, you might have some interesting stuff, uh, you wanted to mention with regard to storage in general. Do you uh, want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure, Tom. Let's talk big data. So um, obviously terabytes and petabytes and above a petabyte is? That'd be an exabyte, right? Yep, an exabyte and above an exabyte. <laughs> is, it, is it a yottabyte? Not yet. That's a zettabyte is next. Zettabyte. You're right. Okay. Yes. And finally, and finally the yettabyte. Okay. Yes, the YBs. So I did a little homework, right, for what's happened here in 2020. And um, according to Dell, who probably has a pretty good handle on this, in 2020, the world hit about 40 zettabytes of storage. Okay. Which is, you'd think, a lot of space. Yeah. So I tried to put that in context of a couple different things. And I dug up uh, some work that Stanford had done looking at our cerebral cortexes, right? And the fact that each of us has about 125 trillion synapses in our brain. And another study which said that each synapse can hold about 4.8 bits of data each, which means that the average brain 
holds about 74 terabytes of data. And there are um, estimated to be 7.8 billion people in the world right now, meaning we get to 538 zettabytes of human storage walking the earth. That is more than half of a yottabyte. Wow. All right. Well, it's a good thing that we're not a shared resource because otherwise, like if my storage filled up, then I'd be trying to store stuff in your brain and who knows yeah. what would happen. Yeah. But, but Tom, please, please do me a favor. Yeah. Next time, next time you see a loved one, please uh-huh. don't, please don't think of them as a 74 terabyte squishy drive. <laughs> That's right. I, got, I could spill over. That's good scratch face, man. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Um, so let's 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 get into the more technical side of this though. Those 40 zettabytes that uh-huh. are stored in the world today, how are they stored? Well, obviously a bunch of different technologies are being used. The one most people think about is spinning disks or spinning mm-hmm. rust as I've called it for for quite some time now. <laughs> All right. Um, and it's popular both on-prem, at home and in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, people like Seagate and Western Digital make these things in spades. Do you know who who um, invented the first spinning hard drive? I'm pretty sure it's IBM, but I it, might be wrong. It, no, you are you are correct. Okay. Um, 1956. This massive 50 platter with 24 inch platters mm-hmm. um, thing spun at 1200 RPM and stored 3.75 megabytes of space. Boy, have we come a long way since. Yeah, for sure. so, so today, those drives, you know, uh, the, the high end spinning disk available commercially is 18 terabytes. We're about to hit 20 terabytes here very quickly. We've seen some demos of 20 terabyte drives out there, and there's a path to get incrementally larger from there. Um, Solid state drives, SSDs, right? Most of them SATA, some of them the very fast and expensive NVMe. Um, The largest one today is 100 terabytes. It's it's only $40,000 for a a 100 terabyte um, SAS SSD. But the majority of the 40 zettabytes out there in the world are stored in the least sexy storage technology available, tape, right? Ah, tape. And why is that? And that's because most of the data in the world isn't active. It's archive or it's a backup slash DR copy, right? That that is offline air gap to be protected against cyber attacks, malware, ransomware, that kind of thing. So regardless of of whether it's archive or DR, we, including Disney, like to go cheap and deep into a cold, sometimes glacially cold tier of storage, (laughs) right? Um, Implemented with tape. And most tape, commercial tape drives, right? Uh, run one of just a few standards, the bigger one being LTO, oh, yeah. right? LTO7's been, been, I'm sorry, LTO8's been dominant for the last couple of years. That's been the standard bearer. That's uh, 12 terabytes of cartridge without any compression. Um, LTO9 was due this month. Looks like it's going to slip a month uh, probably. And they just lowered the capacity on that one from 24 to 18 terabytes per cartridge making it much more affordable. 
Um, and then from there, LTOs 10, 11, and 12 keep doubling that. So from, okay. eight, from 18 to 36, 72, 144 terabytes. But that's not as exciting as what IBM continues to do behind the scenes with partners like Sony and Fuji. Um, so taking us back five years ago, back when we were still based on uh, barium ferrite technology, right? Fuji and Sony put together a demo of a 220 terabyte tape cartridge. Three years ago, IBM and Sony demoed a 330 terabyte cartridge. And this week, and the reason why I wanted to bring it up today, Fuji and IBM partnered up again and produced a 580 terabyte tape cartridge. That's pretty amazing. It's a little bit longer than the typical tapes, but not much. So we're still talking a tape cartridge the size of your palm. Here. I was going to say, is what's the form factor? So similar to the size of that serpentine format, whatever, whatever that is, LTO, yeah. DLT. Correct, which is a half yeah. inch, which is a half inch wide tape, um, five hundred and eighty terabytes. That's thirty two of those eighteen terabyte hard drives that are common today in a mm -hmm. single cartridge. And then, do you know? Did they release anything on like what the read write? Because of course, the other thing that keeps improving, or they have to keep improving by design, right? Is that when you have more and more stuff on a single cartridge, you've got to make the drives, you know, yes. write, read and write faster and faster. Yes, and and they have. <laughs> I I didn't see any stats for this latest one. Um, mm -hmm. They are in continuing to increase the number of tracks and shrink the width of the tracks on the tape, right? So that, yes, as the tape moves, they're, they're just reading an, a massive amount of data per inch, right? So they're now at uh, 317 gigabits per square inch, right? So that tape doesn't have to move far to get a large amount of data. Wow, that's really cool. So, And this is how you can store 40 plus zettabytes of information. <laughs> very cheaply and very safely. So how many of those would it take, I wonder, to store one zettabyte? I guess I should have, we should have done the math before the uh, podcast, but. Yes, yes, because I didn't, I didn't do that math and I'm not going to pull right. my calculator out right yeah. now. Yeah. All do right, that. well, I think, uh, I think my friend Kevin's on this call. So when we get off, I'll find out how many uh, tape slots there are on two SL8500s that are connected. <laughs> and then we'll assume they can make a library like that for this format. We'll figure out how many zettabytes we can, we can uh, fit in there. Um, yes. Well, that's really cool. And it's cool that you've like had the opportunity to stay in the forefront of that for so long. Obviously, the combination of, you know, the fact that you work for this place that has these insanely, you know, difficult to meet requirements and diverse requirements, uh, coupled with the fact that, you know, it doesn't hurt to work for uh, such a big company that invests in the future. So you've probably got an opportunity to meet and talk to a lot of cool people during the years. I have. Um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to put a plug out there. Because I see on our attendee list somebody from Spectrologic. So one of my favorite people to talk about tape and tape drives with is Matt Starr, the CTO of Spectrologic. Oh, he is an incredibly smart guy. Yeah, I think um, they're based in Colorado, right? Yes, they are. 
privately held, I think. I have never met their CTO, but perhaps someday you'll introduce me. Yes, yes, or someday, yes, at an NAB when we yeah. can when we can safely hold NABs again. Yeah. Still trying to get my money back from the last one. <laughs> Ouch. Oh boy. Yeah. I I mean, it's I I think that along with like baseball game are sort of, you know, there's like a spectrum to this thing, right? Like where, you know, I hope to be able to do this and do this and like I can kind of envision a world where you and I, you know, I don't know, you and Lance and Marley and myself go out for a meal. This I can see happening. NAB is like, does it, it just seems so far out of reach right now. You know, like it, it, it does, it does. But, but that is also one of my favorite places to go because it's a one, one-stop shop for me. I can hit all my, yeah. fav- all my favorite vendors. Yeah. Just remember to wear shoes that are broken in. Never buy new shoes right before NAB. No, no, so. no. And, and make sure if, if you're going to wear fancy dress shoes, make sure they're hybrids. That's that's right. Suede and leather, yes. Um, so hey, in terms of so obviously we're all going through this super weird time, and it sounds like you've got a pretty interesting take on the future of the storage market. So if we zoom out a little bit and just look at technology in general, um, what what do you think is you know most exciting in terms of uh, market trends or new innovations? Sorry, I hadn't pre thought about this one. It's all right. I got you on the spot. Um, yes, you do. Yeah. Um, for me, the most exciting things are the hybrid solutions. And of course, for storage, it's the hybrid on-prem cloud-based solutions where, mm-hmm. I, where I can't tell where data is coming from, right? It just, it just quote unquote, magically works, magically mm-hmm. links the, the two together, right? The, I have a dozen devices all assigned to the same account. And I don't know where the data is stored, presumably in the cloud, usually mm-hmm. in the cloud, right? But it, everything allows me to feel as though it's all connected. So even though I know that for performance reasons, what I'm working with is a local copy of the data. Yeah, I've spent the better part of the late summer and early winter looking at a bunch of stuff out there and trying to figure out how it's um Sometimes it's hard to get my arms around how those work and how they're different from each other. And of course, not all, but a lot of the workflows that DZ ends up uh, touching are file-based workflows. And most, but not all, you know, uh, non-on-premise storage is object. So there seems to be um, a lot of innovation and investments by these, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's like, an abstraction layer where they're not necessarily a company that's focused on file storage and file services, and they're not necessarily a cloud provider, but they're trying to like bridge the gap um, between the two. So. Yes, yes, it 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 will be good someday when we don't actually use the vernaculars file based or object based. Yeah, there's um, I think. Because obviously there's like some caching involved. And yeah, if we could get to the point where things were a bit more ubiquitous and it wasn't one or the other, um, hopefully that would help solve a lot of the performance problems. But right now it seems to be a lot of uh, doing stuff under the covers to try to mask latency. Because of course, yes. even more than uh, even more than throughput, when you start dealing with TCP IP, latency is like a big problem. Yes, yes. That for me is is one of my my hopeful states, right? 
is that I no longer have to talk about file versus object and gateways and and whatnot, and I don't have to think about on-prem versus cloud. Yeah. That, that it's all ubiquitous. Yeah, and I mean things are definitely trending in that direction because we can tell that you know the market or whatever you want to call it is investing a lot of money in trying to bridge the gap, which means hopefully that gap should get smaller and smaller and eventually it'll close itself. Um, assuming that the innovation curve uh, doesn't have some other surprise for us we haven't thought of. There's like some even better idea that we haven't thought of yet. So let's talk about uh, what is behind you next to that Christmas tree, sir. We had a big wine rack back there. Yes. Now, when I first met you, I think that you were still, every vintage, you were still making wine. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your interest in wine and how you got into making it? Sure. So I'm going to I'm gonna back up to to before that. I mentioned earlier that when I graduated, I went to work at UCLA before coming to Disney. What I didn't tell you was that it was at the UCLA Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. Um, and, and in my five years there, we had one of our professors earn the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I also had a grad student helping me who taught me the chemistry of making beer. And so... Um, prior to the Northridge earthquake, because I'm, I live up in the Northridge area, I was making beer, many, many um, bottlings, and as a home brewer, right? Not commercial. Mm -hmm. um, but we still called it Twin Peaks Ale. And it was mostly Bass Ale type beers we made. Uh, then the Northridge earthquake occurred. I lost my home. I lost um, all my beer making equipment, most of which was glass. And in the years after that, I transitioned to wine first, just as a as a wine uh, aficionado, and and then in 2002, actually got the bug to try making wine. And so, starting in 2002 and last vintage in uh, 2010, I made uh, something like uh, 4,000 cases. Sounds about right. Okay, forty-eight thousand bottles, right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. that's, that sounds closer to to accurate. Um, this time commercially, right? So got all the proper licenses. What a pain in the rear! Talk about compliance paperwork. Yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah, that was the least fun part of the job. The production was the fun part of the job. Um, and so in the in Santa Barbara County. Up at the very northern end is a community called Santa Maria, mm -hmm. um, which is fantastic for growing a couple different types of grapes up there. Red grapes in particular do very well, uh, Syrah and Pinot Noir. Um, so I made Pinot Noir. Uh, I made Petite Syrah, which is not to be confused with Syrah. What is the difference anyway between those two? Uh, not to go down a, like a wine rabbit hole, but I've always wondered that. Um, so Petite Syrah, completely different varietal, um, is, is essentially, um, a much thicker skin. So a much darker, more tannic wine, uh, with intense color versus a Syrah, which in Australia, the identical grape is pronounced Shiraz. Shiraz. Yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing petite about petite Syrah is what you're telling me. In fact, no. it's it's quite grand. Yeah. Huh? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> oui, oui. Um, 
Um, and then uh, for white wine, I made an interesting one called Viognier. Um, so um, my father, I chose Petit Syrah as it was my father's uh, favorite red wine. Okay. And so when I made the wine and labeled it, I put his name on the bottle. Right? Oh, cool. And, and while legally his name is Robert, he goes by Bud. Um, okay. And, and luckily, dad is still with us. Um, and um, what he didn't know until I gave him the first bottle was that it was going to have his name on the bottle. So, yes. Um, nice. I, I, I thought I would get him to cry, but no, it was mom who cried that day. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask, but I was wondering if that made him get a little misty. Now, did you guys drink a bottle of that together at some point? Oh. At many points? At many points, yes. <laughs> yes, he was he was the wine's number one fan. As It's just as, as people, when they would come up, you know, to try my wine at tasting events, right? And it's like, what is this? And I would start to pour them my petite Syrah and they would say, Bud, what's that? I said, well, it's not Bud Light. <laughs> love it. And then I think you and I both share a love for coffee. Um, oh, more yes. on that after the podcast. I got something uh, that I, I think we should do. That'll be really fun. Little, little, uh, you were talking about brewing the perfect cup of coffee, but yes. um, tell us a little bit. When did you start? When did you get like super focused on that journey and uh, how's that going? So I, I have a dear friend who is a, a dual citizen of France and the U.S. who got me into coffee in 2003 and, and taught me the difference between uh, a, a ordinary cup of coffee and something special. Mm -hmm. Um. And so over the years, and especially on my visits to Hawaii, both Kauai and the Big Island, um, and now having toured some Kona coffee plantations and whatnot, right? I've learned what I do and don't like in coffee, right? And I definitely do not like the bitter component of coffee. So hence the desire to learn how to brew the perfect cup of coffee, Without yeah. all that, without all that bitterness, but learning about beans, learning about roast levels, learning about grinds. Yeah, and it's interesting how even the same varietal from a different lot, you know, depending on how artisan your beans are, and that's a whole other story. But if, assuming you're you're buying like small lot coffee, you can have some from one lot. And from another lot, or even if they're roasted exactly the same, you might need to adjust things like the dosage and the grind and all the stuff like that. Um, I've been into it for so long, and I got involved like during the second wave when coffee was – the beans were good, but our preparation methods were – I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't – it would be like trying to do surgery with a machete or something. You know, We just – we had the right product, but we didn't really have the right tools back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but, uh, one of the things I always try to remember is this is so much better than anything I would have gotten <laughs> like prior to the third wave of coffee that, yeah, I need to be happy. And, um, of course I love coffee so much. I always have to remember, you got to regulate your dosage. I always want to, my instinct is always to put too many grounds in there, which is why a scale has definitely helped. So, uh, yes, I've got the scale already. 
Yeah. And I've asked Santa Claus for a bunch of the um, <laughs> for a bunch of the uh, pour over technologies that I'm going to need. Gotcha. Yeah, V60, Clever Dripper. Those seem to be two very popular ones. Uh, Chemex is also very oh, yeah. popular. Very beautiful device, you know. Yes. Like with the little very. leather strings and everything on there. Yes, very Japanese. Yes. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and then depending on how like OCD you are about it, um, you know, there was a large debate probably this is probably 10 years ago on the on the size of the hole in your pour over, right? So the Hario versus Chemex versus uh, uh, you know, uh, Molina and all that. So they were like, well, if the hole's this big, you should grind the coffee this way. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I am, I am, I shouldn't say I'm surprised anymore, but when I get reviews for somebody's, you know, reserve beans and they have the reviewer's notes in there, the reviewer goes into these gory details as to exactly what grind level. You yes. know, the, the dosage, the water temperature, the timing, all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that trying to get a friend of mine to do, who's like super expert coffee preparer person is go, okay, so if we're doing it at home, which all of us are, right, um, with what we have, how can we prioritize those things? Because a lot of times we always forget like good beans, grinding it right before you drink it. And water quality are, are probably the things we have the most control over, right? That are super important. And sometimes things like getting the dosage exactly perfect on a digital scale, um, or even things like water temperature are quite difficult. I had a um, you know a water boiling device, the ones that use static electricity to create hot water in like a short period of time. And I remember the first one I bought that had like it had like different target temperatures. You know, it's like this is for tea and this is for coffee. I um, always thought that was interesting. 205 degrees. Yeah. Well, last but not least, I'm like super bummed that I'm not going to see you at the Christmas party this year with your Santa hat on. Um, and I promise that we will find a way to do that once it's uh, safe to do so. Okay. Um, Excellent. But uh, hey, what are you – so what are you going to do this weekend? Obviously, life has changed. Um, what's the plan for this weekend for you? So, well, that one's a very easy answer, Tom. Uh, we are watching the season finale of The Mandalorian. Ah, where uh, Baby Yoda now has a name, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. I still can't remember it, but he does have a name. Um, and the name's not Yoda Bite, right? I'm just checking. <laughs> no. No, it's not. Um, Oh, from the audience, Grogu. Does that sound right? Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> Angie Light for the win. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also known as simply the baby. The baby. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, really made a stir. And so, but there's only two of that species that we know of. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday, right? Correct. Um, Correct. The the baby and Yoda. So does the baby Yoda have a tiny little lightsaber or is it not, not like he's not old enough. He hasn't he, had his training yet. No, he's, he's only 50 something years old. So he's, he, okay. he does not have. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
All right. Well, hey, Brad, I really appreciate you doing this. It was really good to see you. Again, a, you know, shame we can't get together in person uh, as we often do over the holidays, but there's always next year. Yes. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming and sharing a little knowledge with us, spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Tom, thank you so much for the invite. This has been fun. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us on Fresh Tech Friday, and I hope you have a great weekend. Signing off. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. I want to thank Jason Johnson for composing our theme music, RSPE, and especially Russ for help with some engineering and equipment, Dell Technologies for helping sponsor some episodes of the podcast, Kayla Robeson, DZ Solutions Marketing Director, for helping make this all possible, and last but not least, our fearless audio engineer, Jeff Rockland engineering from afar. If you want to learn more about Jeff and his projects, I encourage you to check out his Relief Valve podcast that you can find wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again and see you next time.